0: It's another Friday, I guess, for you. It's another Tuesday for us when we record the dish cast. And I am, as you know now, as you now know, ensconced in P Town, having my usual province town frustrations. Nothing works, everything's broken, and there's nobody around to fix it. But um, you know, that's the price of having a, a rotting wooden cottage on the beach. As I'm settling in, one of the bright spots is we have a list of really quite remarkable people coming up and talking to us on the Dishcast. Patrick Janine on a post-liberal future. David Gran on his new book, The Wager, A Tale of Shipwreck Mutiny and Murder. Um, what? And Matt Lewis, later in the summer. Sorry, we, that's, that's Chris bitching in. And many more to be filled in. But this week, we have Lee, She goes by Lee, her full name is Dr. Tabia Lee, and she's an educator and consultant. And she was the faculty director for the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education at De Anza College until she was fired recently for her heterodox views on diversity, equity, and inclusion. She also serves on the board of directors for Free Black Thought. Lee, thank you so much for coming.
1: Thank you for having me, glad to be here.
0: I want to start by asking you where you grew up and, and who your parents were and, and, and how that manifested itself in your early years into your view of the world.
1: Yes, so I am a California native. Uh, I've grown up in the state of California my whole entire life. My formal education has all been in public uh, schools in the state of California. And uh, it's just been a part of my life uh, to be involved in education. Sometimes people ask me, how long have you been teaching? And I say, as long as I've been alive. I started off in elementary school being utilized as a peer tutor for my peers in a gifted and talented education program that I was involved in in elementary school. So you, and- were,
0: you were selected as a, gifted, as a gifted kid to go to a special. Is that, is that what you're saying?
1: A public school, yeah, a gifted and talented education program, and the teachers didn't quite know what to do with us, so we were often, you know, spending a lot of time playing Oregon Trail and other video games on the Apple IIc computers and being utilized as peer tutors, basically. So, you know, from an early age on, I was not only a learner, but a teacher and a co-teacher with my teachers, and so that was just something that was instilled with me from the beginning, The importance of learning, the importance of being a co-learner, the importance of teaching and learning at the same time. As time went on, you know, when you're high school, um, I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Andrew, with uh, what's called dual enrollment. Um, That's where you can be a middle school or elementary school or high school student and take classes at a a college at the same time. Uh, Now it's really common. But when I was doing it, I had to get these special permissions from my parents, from the counselors, from teachers to be able to take classes at my local community college. And so
0: when you were when this was
1: like 12, 12 and
0: 13. Wow. So you um, you were you were you were just an exceptionally brilliant kid.
1: Well, you know, I, I ended up accruing so many credits that I graduated from high school two years early. So I and I had that many credits from the community college.
0: So now you have to tell me about your parents. Like, tell me how they encouraged this. I mean, how did they deal with this this young daughter who's who's seemingly brilliant? Were you were you were you you, did you have siblings? Were you different than them or or, or were you always this way and they just accepted you for that?
1: I've always been a little bit different. And, you know, someone who likes reading, you know, a voracious reader from very early on. And, you know, someone who likes uh, solitude and solitary time, very much an introvert and still very much so. And, you know, just someone who was always reading, you know, and, and, and consuming whatever I could, a uh, wide range of things. So, you know, my parents always made sure to have a lot of books around me. You know, I grew up in a, in a household where, you know, we didn't have TV or well, there was TV, but we weren't allowed to uh, consume it. And I always thought that was a little bit cruel, you know, because this is during the time of, I don't know if you remember MTV and the big boom, you know, in, in all the households of all your favorite artists coming in with their videos. Yeah. And, you know, my friends would see things and they were watching Prince and Madonna and all these people. And, you know, I wasn't seeing that because, you know, our parents just kind of limited our consumption. What In a way, well, in a way, were, I'm your glad
0: parents, were your parents very well educated or did they? or were they just very concerned that their kids be be focused on their education?
1: My family is a family of educators and activists as well. And so, you know, that those are things that, you know, they were involved in from the beginning. So, you know, I was always surrounded by a strong support for education. And as I mentioned, some rules that were a little bit different than what my friends experienced, you know, they didn't quite see me outside of school or whatnot. And I don't think even if the rules weren't in place, they would have very much, because as I mentioned, I am very much an introvert. So, so, you know, it was, it was just a a good way of growing up. You know, when I was younger, I would question it a lot and say, you know, why don't we do things that other kids do? Uh, But in a way, I'm glad that we didn't because it helped to shape who I am now, you know, as a free thinker and a critical thinker. And that's just been something that stayed with me from my young adult, you know, growing up and Going through community college, which I think was uh, uh, saved me quite a bit from the banality of high school and high school experiences. You know, having that outlet at a community college was was formative for me, shaped who I am as a scholar. You know, there I had access to multiple perspectives, thoughts and viewpoints that I wasn't getting in my coll- in my high school experience. And I just really flourished as a scholar. So I always tell people like that shaped who I became, you know later on. Tell me where exactly this was, so I have a better idea of where you are. You were somewhere in California. Whereabouts? Central Valley. So I was born in Stockton, raised in a small town called Lodi. Uh, A lot of people know Lodi by Creed's Clearwater Revival, Stuck in Lodi uh, song. Usually that's what people sing to me. But, you know, a great, good small town, you know, a lot of just opportunities to get to know people. Everybody pretty much knew everybody else. What was the racial
0: mix in the town?
1: Central Valley still very much has a lot of different demographics there, but the, I would say the majority is still largely white, if, you're, if that's of importance to people. I know people like to think of things in those terms, but I, I really don't. But I yeah.
0: Mm-hmm. I, I, but the Central Valley is also sort of not quite as liberal or as upper class or as wealthy as the coasts, and now increasingly Republican, as I understand it. Is,
1: is that true where you grew up? I wouldn't say that. I I wouldn't. I don't don't think
0: Democrats to the the state uh, legislature.
1: Uh, Yeah, California is an interesting mix. Some portions of it are, you know, heavily Republican. Some are Democrat. And I I would say that Lodi, that area is is like a crossroads between the two. I I wouldn't really say it's one or the other heavily. You definitely find a good mix of, of people and perspectives for sure so
0: what were your scholarly interests that, that you were looking you were looking for community college to supplement your high school banality
1: oh basically just you know um, accelerating through the coursework because you know that was a need that i had as a learner and that's something that stuck with me even as i became a formal educator so you know fast forward many years after high school going through getting my formal education and moving to Los Angeles, where I ended up teaching for over a decade there in public middle schools. And I taught English, civics, and social studies. I actually developed a civic education program there that ended up getting accolades from the Board of Education, the uh, Los Angeles Unified School District Board of Education, for the positive impact on students' lives. And this was during time of Prop 209 in California and a bunch of other legislative moves, such as English only and you know, the destruction of multilingual and bilingual education programs. And I was working with gifted English language learners and having to help teachers to understand giftedness as not something that was bound to your language proficiency. So because a lot of teachers thought if this if the student couldn't speak English or, you know, couldn't score in an English proficiency exam, they couldn't possibly be gifted. So I was breaking down, you know, those silos of understanding giftedness as a neurodiversity. And and in a way, it was great because a lot of misconceptions that teachers held, you know, around being gifted that I had even encountered as a learner, I was able to then serve my colleagues and, you know, the students that we were working with, with the knowledge that I had gained throughout the years, just around in, in terms of understanding giftedness and And how it works, and best ways to support gifted students academically, socially, emotionally. So, a lot of my early work focused around that. And this is a group of kids who are
0: not the focus, it seems to me, of current educational policy. I I, like you, I'm I'm vibing with you because I too was a, a kid who was selected for a gifted so called gifted it had a different it was a, it was a it was an 11 plus we were put into a a magnet school of very bright but a variety of backgrounds and class and so on and so forth mm-hmm. and it, you know I've, gifted kids are not the easiest to teach or to or to get to what's what's the What's first of all how do you define a gifted kid and secondly how on earth do you manage to teach them? Because it seems to me they're the most, in some ways, the hardest to teach.
1: Really, that's, that was some of the most enjoyable years of, of my profession so far, is teaching middle schoolers. And a lot of times people tell me, Andrew, they're like, you must be a special person because not only were you teaching gifted and talented, but middle school, you know, that age of 11 to 13. It's such a important time in so many people's lives that when you are starting to question things and to question, you know, parental authority and who am I and who am I on my own outside of the family home base and and so it was an age it it, it still is an age that I have a lot of affinity for and that I really enjoy and because. That's just been who I've always been, you know, trying to figure out who am I in the world? How do I fit in with this what seems like a strange planet in many ways at many different times? And so it, 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 it's just something that came naturally to me. But I also did a lot of studying of how do you form curriculum? How do you approach pedagogy? What are the best ways to do that? So, you know, I'm not only just teaching in that time. But also just consuming as much as I could about the scholarship of teaching and learning, and then sharing that with my fellow teachers. So that's just been kind of just who I am, like my What's whole life. What's
0: the key to teaching gifted students? Is there something particularly required for that 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 variety of the profession?
1: Oh yeah, well, oh I should clarify. Not only did I teach gifted and talented, but I also taught just regular courses as well. So honors and regular. So I had a mix always. And what I find, Andrew, is that the things that you would think if you're looking at universal design for learning principles, which is what I really base my pedagogy on even now when I teach teachers how to teach, when you design things in a way that are, is accessible to learners, it, it really does create a way of engaging learners and supporting learning that the labels fall to the side. I wouldn't say so much that there's one way of teaching just gifted children that works with only gifted children. I think good teaching principles work across the border, especially when you're designing instruction in a way that is very intentional and with universal design principles in mind. So, and that probably, I'm probably going too high up. So I'm trying to like (laughs) put this in a middle way where people can understand. I'm often told like, what you're saying, you know, like, I, I, I don't get it as from a teacher. I'm a teacher, though, so that's, that's just my I guess like
0: you just have to observe teachers teaching to understand how it works because it's, it's, there's an art to it. There's a, the, I mean, there were teachers in my growing up who were fantastic, and teachers who were just dreadful, that you clearly couldn't control a classroom. They couldn't get quiet with 30 boys making hell, age 12 and 13, 14, these difficult periods it was it was i i I. kind of as one of those particularly gifted kids i i also kind of withdrew to some extent and focused on some teachers and not others what were the uh, challenges of the kids that you dealt with primarily what were they grappling with was it family issues was it was it just class questions were they were there any external factors that were impeding their learning
1: I would say the challenges of, of students that I served, you know, when I was teaching in K through 12, as well as even today, were not with the students. It's with the teachers and their mindsets and the adults that are in the environment and what they do or don't do to support learners. And so I, I, I wouldn't cast my understanding of things, and I, I just never have. I'm very student centered and focused. It's more the adults in the area who tend to cause the difficulties in learning. You know, by either not being aware of sound pedagogy, not being responsive to the needs of the students who are sitting right in front of them, having their own ideologies and agendas that, you know, really stop them from connecting in meaningful ways to students. So that's how I understand difficulties of learning, not as something that rests within a student, but within the adults and the educators and the people who are facilitating those learning environments. That's where the issues reside. And the things that we need to work on as educators reside. And unfortunately, what I see, Andrew, is that over the years, the art and craft of teaching has really been removed from teachers. And, you know, we have a lot of people who come into the classroom space, including activists and politicians and policymakers and so forth, and people who really don't have an understanding of effective pedagogy, of the craft of teaching, of the science of teaching and learning, who brought their own agendas to play and and to bear and we're really seeing students and families and communities suffering as a result of it. And I I, I mean this from when I talk about political agendas and stuff, sometimes people start to think like, oh, is she, you know, a right winger or a left winger or she's a conservative or a liberal or, you know, what camp is she in? I'm not speaking from any of those camps because I don't identify with any of them and I never have and never will. I'm, I'm just always someone who's looking at this from a humanist perspective, if, if anything, if someone has to have a label for me, and I'm looking at what is the impact on the lives of the students and the, and the community members as a result of these actions that are taking place, a lot of times outside of their control or locus of control.
0: When you um, say ideologies, what, do, what are you referring to exactly in terms of pedagogy?
1: Yes. I'm glad you gave me an opening to kind of touch on that. In the early 2000s, some of my research partners and I, we, we coined this phrase, a teacher ideology in practice. And what that really is looking at, Andrew, is getting teachers to become more aware of the various ideologies that they embody and enact. Now, when I say ideology, that we could spend like a whole show unpacking what, does, what is ideology and what is a frame? But a simple way to just, you know, cut through a lot of things, a mental framework, a way of viewing the world, a, an understanding of the world in a particular set of ideas. So when I talk about ideology in practice, I'm meaning things like race ideologies, gender ideologies, political ideologies, religious ideologies, all of those different ways of seeing the world. And becoming more aware of them, it has been like a big portion of my work with teachers to help us to identify what ideologies are we operating from? How does that impact the way we see and view and interact with students, with their communities, with our colleagues, with the curriculum that's there in place? So for Um, example,
0: to, to take an example of that I've been a little upset about recently, when a group of kids arrive in school and they're asked to pick pronouns. That sounds to some extent like, why not? Who cares? Everyone has a pronoun. And they're presented with, that they can pick a pronoun It doesn't have to be in, a, in, in alignment with their actual sex, their biological sex. It, it needn't even be he or she. It could be they or some other option, Z or whatever. And these, this doesn't seem to me, or at least maybe to most people, like an ideology. It might seem as if it is just simply attempting to make the handful of kids who will not identify with their own sex more comfortable. Is that is that one of the kind of hidden ideologies that creeps in here?
1: That's a whole different topic, I would say. And I'm speaking, Andrew, for, as someone who was an early proponent of the use of pronouns. So Let, let me, let me back up and kind of explain that a little bit. So I was teaching, I've been teaching online since I was a teenager. I mean, like I had online learning groups on local bulletin board systems, you know, Mm -hmm. with the dial modem and AOL America online and CompuServe. I had learning groups on, on those platforms as a teenager. And so I was, I've been online educating before the pandemic, before everyone was pushed into it, you know, in the 2020s. And so I've spent a lot of my life learning effective ways of engaging people in a digital format or dial up (laughs) before that. And, you know, at that time, there was no way to, we didn't have Zoom. (laughs) There was no way to see who's on that other side of the screen name uh, that you're engaging with. And so I was one of the early proponents in online education, you know, saying, you know, so I know who someone is, you know, tell me, you know, what you prefer to be called. What's your name? Because sometimes people have wacky screen names. Right. And do you know, do I refer to you as he her? him you know what's your preferred way of being a way
0: of identifying people who would otherwise be basically anonymous it was a way of getting exactly some kind of identifying characteristics that is not what's happening it's
1: humanized and to humanize things
0: right Right. that's not what's happening now with right uh, right ideology
1: what you see so often in education is things that start off as good ideas that then become ideologically infused and, and then misused and misapplied in, in later times. And, and this is one of those instances, I would say, from my, this is my own personal opinion, I'm not speaking for anyone else or any other organization, just that it, it's, an, it's an instance where something that starts off as a good is a way of building belongingness and welcomingness, Becomes ideologically infused and just goes way off the rails as we've seen with this. And I'm saying that, Andrew, not to make anyone feel bad, you know, or, or to alienate anyone or anything like that. But when we start to talk, okay, so I, I mentioned I worked through K through 12 and I was also, you know, training teachers and always doing professional development for teachers. And now in my current positionality, I actually helped develop whole teacher trainings and, you know, institution-wide transformations. That was part of my work at DeAnza. In one of the recent meetings that was hosted by our the DeAnza College Pride Center, and this is not just happening at DeAnza, some of the people stood up and they said, you know, pronouns are the right of, of, of every person. We should all be required to state our pronouns in our syllabi, course syllabi, professors. And not only that, at the start of every class, you should state your pronouns and your sexuality and then have your students do the same. And what we're seeing there, Andrew, that's a misapplication of something that started off to be inclusive and welcoming. Now we're making it a compulsion. And we're saying you must do it and you will do it. And, And when things become a must and a will, it's no longer for the good of all. In fact, some of the people, the same people that it's meant to help, it's actually harming. And I say this from, you know, a perspective of someone who, as I mentioned, was doing early work around this, you know, and now I have friends coming back full circle who say, you know, I'm quote, gender fluid, some people call themselves, right? And they say, and this makes me uncomfortable. Because every time I go somewhere, I have to state my pronouns and people are looking to see if I'm matching that. And it's like a thing that was supposed to help all of us feel welcome. I'm constantly bombarded with it and I'm having to constantly state it and affirm it and show it and make sure that I'm doing it, you know, in a way that other people will recognize. And so it's gone, it's gone way beyond where it should have. It's infused with ideologies. I would well, sometimes say. Sometimes it's
0: good to talk about what you're learning rather than having to talk about yourself or define yourself. Mm-hmm. or express your identity in a learning context other than I'm a human trying to understand the world a little better. So you were a pioneer of diversity and inclusion efforts, so to speak. Or, or am I, is that, you, you rolled your eyes at that? that, that that's yeah, that, not. That's,
1: yeah, I feel like that's putting way too, many. no, I was, I was just, you know, I'm just a person who's always tried to be a decent human being and a teacher. You know, I wouldn't call myself a pioneer. Um, at all because uh, to me a pioneer is someone who's like led a you know a movement that other people you know followed after okay I I would love to (laughs) think of myself that way let me
0: take a little bit this way how did you in your early career foster what you understood to be inclusion or diversity in your own classrooms that this is before we get to the ideological element of this what would be an an unideological way of of making every student feel welcome and included. How does that work in practice? How did you do it?
1: I think that involves just getting to know your students and communities by being present, being dialogical, listening, taking an inquiry-based approach. These are all things that what I'm like kind of spouting off right now that I've always taught teachers to do and work to practice myself. It's something that is a continual practice. You know, often when you hear these DEI consultants, they say it's a never ending thing. To me, that's the never ending thing. Having intellectual humility, knowing that I don't have all the answers and there's no way I possibly could. And, you know, taking a more inquiry based approach, not thinking that I know the solution that's needed or what my students need before I even see them. Uh, sometimes we're looking at test scores before the students even walk in the room, uh, with this whole database, you know, obsession that we have right now, uh, or that we had, it seems we're even drifting away from that. And we're looking at the scores and making all of these assumptions, you know, before the child or the person's even in front of us. And so we have this wall and this barrier before we even start the engagement. So, I'm so for all-
0: you, it's every individual student at a time. And- and no generalizations about them, just listening to them as a unique individual and tailoring your teaching to make sure that individual feels part of the process. Yes, um,
1: yes, yes. Like
0: like people used to do (laughs) when they were trying to get all children motivated and interested. One of the things to do with that, you get to know them as individuals, not as representatives of a sex or race or... Or or whatever is to break that down in the learning process. Right. I mean, tell me, in terms of race, because this is this is where you've hit a lot of your the barriers recently. How would you do that on a racial basis? Would, would you, you, you would you just wait for them to express in what individual unique way their lives might have been affected by the color of their skin, or would you just ignore it, or or how would you make it clear that you were available to listen to them if those were some of the issues that they had.
1: That you just said it at the end tail there, making it clear to each of the students who are in the learning environment, whether they're teachers or whether they're you know K through 12 students or adult learners, that I am available to hear and to listen and to not prejudge. So a lot of my work, I I call it holistic teaching and learning. It involves really getting to know people as individuals. And that means, you know, what is their experience in this walk-through life? What are their learning needs at this time? How can I best support that and, and, you know, and get to know each person as an individual? It takes a lot of work and interest to do. And I find that when you do make those connections and you do get to know people as individuals, Without, you know, all of these stereotypes and assumptions and the biases that can get, you know, brought in, depending on different perspectives that you're working from, it really does help people to feel more comfortable, to feel like, you know, there is a person meeting a person and not just a teacher, you know, that power dynamic of the teacher, the expert and the content and some kind of mediating factor between there. So that that's what I really do focus on is building those relationships with students and, and, you know, just we're co-learning. I, I don't, I don't feel like I ever have all the answers or I should have all the answers, but what I, what I do is help guide people um, through ways of thinking about a topic or an issue, not telling them what to think or, you know, um, how they should think, but there's different perspectives, ways of seeing this issue. For example, different lenses we can use, what lens resonates with you. And, and letting the learner decide for themselves, you know, what, what is most important. So that's
0: fascinating because when it came to DEI, as it were, you, one of the things that you came a cropper over was that you presented different ways of thinking of race in, and different ways of thinking about diversity and told or didn't tell, but engage students in in thinking about these different approaches and what they might get from them. So, for example, let's, let's, you wrote this rather interesting essay I found um, on different philosophical perspectives to the question of race. It reminded me a little bit of my own attempts a long time ago to, to figure out different perspectives on the question of homosexuality. They were There were legitimate positions from... The, what we might call the prohibitionist right to the liberationist left to a liberal position to a conservative position and, and if you I had a particular view but I hoped to present them all fairly enough so that readers could if they said well I don't agree with Sullivan and I think these people are smarter than that are better than that for these reasons if if a book achieved that then I was very happy that would that would absolutely I did not expect writing a book that everybody comes to the end of it agreeing with me But I did want to kind of explode this idea that you're either pro-gay or anti-gay. This crude, dumb idea that there's just bigots or nice people in the world, and you just have to decide you're not with a bigot. And that struck me as just incredibly crude and, and tedious and actually didn't give real, I don't know, real perspective or background or depth. To the complicated feelings that people of all different kinds have with their own journey towards being a homosexual or a lesbian or a straight person for that matter, and you've had this if you outrage so so tell me you you had a notes have fallen to the ground. oh, let me get them right here this is a highly professional podcast. My notes are on a piece of paper. I know we don 't do that anymore, but i 'm still that old anyway I want to to one of the things and I want to go through these different terms, if we may, Lee, because I think they're both interesting. You, you talk about four different ways of looking at it, naturalism, neo-reconstructionism, constructionism, and then what you call skeptical eliminativism. Now, these are your own paradigm, as it were, these are your own structure of, of ideas. Tell me about each of them, like naturalism and how it views race.
1: OK, so first, I'd like to explain to you where the article even came from and why, because I think that will help you to understand, you know, like, why was I even looking at that? So I told you about my whole idea of ideology and practice earlier and that I had really approached it in a way that was just very open. You know, I never had until this point really dived into, you know, gender ideologies or ideologies of sexuality or race or any of them. What I found myself in, Andrew, when I took on the position at De Anza College as the faculty director there for the Office of Equity, Social Justice, and Multicultural Education, was that I encountered this focus on what they called race, racial equity. And as I started to do that work and ask people, what did they mean when they were saying that? I found that it was all over the board. And, you know, as I did my needs assessment conversations, folks kept telling me, you know, we have this commitment to equity. And I would say, well, what is equity? And I would get all these different definitions. And then, you know, by the end of these various needs assessment conversations, some of the higher level folks started to say, you know, we've all been using these terms, diversity, equity, inclusion, all these years, 30 something years. And we're all meaning something different from it. And that's why we're kind of flatlined right now. And we can't move because. Each one of us means a different thing by it, and there's no common path or common understanding. And so a big portion of my work initially at the end, because I mentioned to you that I do take this inquiry-based approach, was hearing what people had to say, noticing the disunity around it, and then wanting people to come together in some defining workshops. So some of my initial workshops were around what defining what do we mean when we say identity and inclusion diversity, equity, and equality, and access and acceptance was my last one. So even just the construct of those workshops and the the phrases I used together caused an immediate outcry, an immediate from my tenure review committee saying, why are you doing that? You should not be doing it. You should never be putting equity and equality together. And I was like, what? What? You know, I, I've always, for me, when my work, I've always heard of, when I hear equity, I think of fairness. And how is that not related to equality? And you know, how do you separate the two? To me, in my understanding, these were like co-conditions. You need them both to be able to have a, a quote, just society. But I was immediately told, absolutely not. Equality is a thing of the past. We're focused on equity. Tell me what is equity? Here's a picture when some apples falling down from the tree. Equity means everybody gets some. And I was like, oh, okay, that's a new one. Here's some people standing on boxes. Equity means everyone can see the playing field. You know, and, and it was never a definition that related to learning. And so I was perplexed by that and bothered. And, I, and of course, I kept wanting to dig deeper. That's what I do. you know? And I would just keep asking questions and more questions. And this annoyed people supremely. And they started to attack me and to say, you're not committed to your work because you're asking these questions. And I was like, asking questions means I'm not committed to my work. That's part of what I thought leadership was around this, getting people to think, exploring ideas. And so as this just went on, the initial uh, backlash was just from asking people to come together and define and think. And then as I started to see that there were some definite like worldviews at work and that, Perhaps maybe the one that I was coming from, which was more exploratory, it was being totally shut out. I was being told what I was doing was dangerous. Don't talk to people about that. Don't ask them questions of that nature. You're undermining all the progress we've made by asking these questions. These were the kinds of feedback I was getting. So I started to want to even more understand what kinds of mental frameworks or ways of thinking would lead people to behave in that way towards one another when it comes to Please, talking about race you, you can't have been that naive i mean you, <laughs> let me you no, um, these words mean they they've
0: come and you, you if you go there and you're like well let's let's go back to square but brass tacks let's go back to square well let's ask ourselves what the meaning of these words is and let's oh. let's figure out before we even do it the people you were engaging with had already figured all that out. DEI means a certain thing to them. It means a, it, they didn't a, tell a quality outcome for various demographic groups, right? That's, they, didn't,
1: they didn't tell anyone else, Andrew. They didn't. They didn't tell anyone else, including their colleagues who are, were there working with them for years. So the people who attacked me are a small group of people who, as you're saying, I mean, looking back now from to me today, I can say exactly what you said. That's what they were saying, you know, they should have been honest. They were disingenuous in the job description. It should have said, you will come in and you will support a worldview that constantly sees people as victims and oppressor. Like it should have said that, and it should be known to students and it should be known to whole everyone on, on campus, but it's not. And so what I discovered, what people say, like you had to know, no, I've been working in this field for 40 years. Never in my life had I encountered such a rabbit hole that I dropped down when I went into, you know, uncovering what was happening at our community colleges. Uh, I had never encountered people calling people white supremacists unless they meant an avowed member of the KKK or white nationalists who that's who I grew up around and seeing, you know, is that I had never heard it used the way that it was used. I hadn't encountered Tim O'Kine and it's Tim O'Kine's work, actually. I hadn't encountered her work Prior to this, I had to come up to speed while doing it and, and, and while trying to just engage in a, in a very scholarly and professional way uh, with people who ended up being very unprofessional and unscholarly. So what I'm um, saying
0: is that there are these words like diversity, equity, inclusion. That everyone thinks they kind of know what they mean, and, but no one's actually spelled it out. And right. But it does actually, when push comes to shove, it means one very particular version. Yes. One particular view of the world mm-hmm. that is deeply actually hostile to any other points of view. Which I've covered. To, because <laughs> these other points of view allegedly harm people, even to entertain the ideas, there is is harm there.
1: That's what um, I've been told, Andrew. That's what I've been told. And that's what was written in my actual evaluation. Statements such as what you just made, your what you are doing is dangerous. You should not put controversial ideas next to each other on comparative charts and have people explore them. You shouldn't be asking people these questions. You're leading them down a path of wrong thinking. Just all kinds of things like that that I've never seen in an evaluation or encountered before now. And I truly had not encountered people who, who were that hostile towards other ideas. I, I, and here's the other part. Until I discovered the work of Dr. Sheena Mason, She falls on that skeptical eliminativist side. I myself, Andrew, did not know that there were different philosophies of race. And so, and you're talking to someone who's been dealing and working in this field for, as I mentioned, decades. And what I discovered was not only did I not know, but the people around me did not know. And the other teachers, the people who were professing various ideas, so what that piece in Free Black Thought sought to do was to give people a naming mechanism. Had I not encountered Dr. Sheena Mason um, and the way she presents her work is not in a way that, you know, this is the solution and here it is. She tells you about philosophies of race and that there are these various ways of looking at it. Her work was the first time in my, and I read widely that I had ever seen anyone do that. And Hmm. she didn't say my way is the right way and ignore all these others. She said, this is one way, you know, look at what resonates with you. And it it was similar to what I told you my approach is of presenting multiple perspectives and letting people decide what's best for them. And so when I encountered that as an educational sociologist first, I was like, wait, this challenges everything I have known and said around race right I've always just said because that's what I've been taught race is socially constructed yeah I mean in the story that, that we all know right it's all no there's another way to see it there's another way to view it when I saw that it caused such cognitive dissonance and grappling and, you know and that that intellectual humility I talk about had to come into play because I was like wait you mean all these years, my mentors, people I still talk to like, who told me race is socially constructed, there was another way and they didn't tell me. And then I started to circle back to some of them and say, like, hey, you know, what, what's up with that? Like, why didn't we in our graduate program ever learn that there's another way to see race besides it being socially constructed? They're like, what? What are you talking about? So this is very fringe. Well, that's fascinating. Because
0: let's, let's also talk about gender here. There are many people that can go through college. Hi there. And, and- This is not the end of this podcast. In fact, we're only just getting going. If you're a paid subscriber and are hearing this, it means you haven't yet signed up for the full new package to get our podcast in full. No extra charge. Just go to andrewsullivan.substack.com forward slash listen, L-I-S-T-E-N, and make sure your podcast is up to date with the DishCast. You'll be able to add it to your DishCast feed and never have this, hear this message again and go back to exactly what you've been doing for the last two years. And I'd like to thank you, too, for contributing for so long. If you're hearing this message and you haven't yet subscribed and want to listen to the rest of the podcast, then just subscribe. It's very easy. AndrewSullivan.Sobstack.com is 50 bucks a year. Great value for money. And You also get with that the entire weekly dish every Friday not just my weekly column, but also all the comments and dissents on that column. You also have a full discussion of the previous week's dishcast. So all those questions you had in your mind can be answered, or you can hear and read readers debating what we talked about, sometimes uh, calling me to account. andrewsullivan.substack.com. Subscribe and get the whole thing. Join the debate. Join the fun. Subscribe.